It only takes one sip of an ice-cold summer drink from McDonald's to give you a quick break from the office, and you're at a party in the Hamptons. You spot future wifey walking up, and she says... Can you move your chair? What? So I can vacuum under there. With so many flavors, where will your sip take you? This summer, come to McDonald's and try a refreshing $2 small McCafe drink, like a frozen strawberry lemonade or a $1 any-size soft drink. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. After almost a year of me harassing and stalking him, I finally got my favorite author to cave in, head down to Jack Dempsey's, 36 West 33rd Street, and finally do my show. Welcome to the Mike Sappho Podcast, my favorite author, the iconic Eric Larson. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, it was the, the promise of Manhattan's at uh, Dempsey's Bar that, uh, that made it for me. At any point of my courtship, was there an order of protection? Were you thinking about anything like that, blocking me or anything, or no? No, 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 no. No, I, I totally apologize. I mean, you caught me at the end of a book tour mm-hmm. when if, it was like, if I get interviewed by one more person, I'm going to kill that person, and you're a cop, I better not. You know what I mean? So, You just had jury duty. How was the case? Any good? No. Horrible and I, and I did. Luckily, I did not have to serve on the jury. I mean, uh, look, I... I, I Jury duty is fascinating. You know, voir dire, fascinating. Gave me a great idea, actually, for something. But, you know, two days of that um, for a case that, I mean, you know, it was sort of a kind of a penny-ante case, you know? It's like, I don't want to spend a week of my life. This is arrogant, I guess, but I don't want to spend a week of my life dealing with a case that I'm not interested in, mm-hmm. right? Now, if it was a murder, you know, something that was fascinating or intrinsically you know compelling you know not so compelling that it would be like the Shkreli case where it's like two and a half months on the jury no no but actually at the very last minute I got cut yeah I figured you were going to well I, I, I'm not really sure why I got cut but I have a feeling it has to do with I mean nobody wants nobody wants a, an upper middle aged white guy from the Upper East Side on a jury never so you mentioned how you did a million book tours, a million interviews, and the same exact thing. So before we get into any of your books, we'll do some personal stuff. Sure. You're sure. living in New York City. You can City. ask me anything. Okay. You're living in New York City now. What brought you to the Big Apple? Oh, wow. Well, um, first may I say we've been here. Well, you know, I grew up in Long Island, mm-hmm. Freeport, Long Island. Okay. Uh, grew up in a family of Manhattanophiles. You know, they all love the city. We all love the city. I, you know, wound up coming the Great Circle route via, you know, Philadelphia to Baltimore to San Francisco to Baltimore to Seattle, and we have three daughters, and, and having shipped those three daughters out to their actual lives, you know, college and then careers, and they're all, you know, they're all thriving, we decided, you know, we love Seattle, but it's a little too sleepy at this point. You know, you've heard of sleep less in Seattle. Of course. Was, for us, it was a little sleepy in Seattle. And so we said, well, where are we going to go? And there were three places in in the country that we considered. One was San Francisco. We'd lived there twice before. One was Chicago. Can't live there. My wife's ex-husband, starter husband, one-year marriage, done. That's what I did. They're in the same profession. They oh. cannot be in the same city. Okay. <laughs> and so it was New York, which to me was terrific. I mean, I, I, I have to tell you, I've been here now um, in New York proper. Now, I'd lived here for a year when I was in graduate school, and of course, I'm all the time in the city before. But I can tell you that the last three years since we actually moved here, best years of my life. Now, you're on Twitter, and you post a lot. You're I in do. You're in Central Park. Is that your go-to spot? Because you do a lot of Central Park. You're doing Central Park when the grass I is love, green. I love yeah. Central Park. We're very near Central Park. Okay. Um, to me, I mean, it, it's, I've died and gone to heaven to be actually in, to be in Manhattan and to be able to go to Central Park whenever I want, and it's like two minutes away. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just I just walk, I watch the people. I mean, it's just like, you know, the thing about New York is it's just, well, as you know, I mean, it's this endless show, right? No matter where you go. We always say the front row seat to the greatest show on earth. It's <laughs> the, the truth. front row seat to the greatest show on earth. And my Fitbit proves it. <laughs> my Fitbit proves Walk it. everywhere. I go anywhere else, right? It's like my Fitbit starts nagging me. Uh, you know, come on, man. <laughs> You're York, better than this. New York, <laughs> This exactly, New York. I'm always beating my 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 my, my quota, which is only ten thousand steps. I'm thinking, I got to increase that because now it's getting like you know I can do this. So when I do twenty thousand steps, then I know I've been in the park, I've been out to wherever, I've gone to meet somebody for lunch, you know, and I've walked back. 
So, so I love I love New York. And then you know what I always love when you post, and I never noticed it. And yesterday I took my friends from California. I showed him and his family around Central Park, and I took my little cousin to a concert there last night. And on Twitter, you post pictures of the bench dedications. Yeah. And I yeah. never I've been there literally a thousand times, and I never read the bench dedications. And some of them are sad as hell. Like some of them are. Oh, crushingly so, beautiful too. So moving. So I, I make it a point when, whenever I walk through the park to always try to stop and look at a couple of those things because you know the people who the people who put those dedications there want them to be read. I mean these benches are there because typically because they lost somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean the one that I posted most recently was like, oh my god, where the, I think it must have been the father or a friend. I don't know who it was, about how you know if I could have saved you, I would. It's like holy shit. You can, yeah, you can curse, you can curse. Holy shit. Yeah, there was <laughs> yeah. one I saw, and it was a quote I used when you talk about addiction, and it was like, uh, may you find peace in heaven that you couldn't find on earth. I'm like, oh my, like, I didn't even want to sit there. It's crushing. That was the same one. That okay, was okay. the same one. That there, was there, crushing. There were a couple, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. A couple, of, a couple of dedications from the same family. Oh. Obviously, they were just absolutely mm -hmm. crushed by whatever it was. I'm thinking it might have been an overdose. Yeah, it, had, I, it was I something with addiction. Something, cause that's an addiction yeah. quote. So yeah, yeah. Now you lived all over. Best and worst part about living in New York City. Worst part, no, no brainer, noise, noise. I mean, I live in a great block, and I swear to God, it might as well be a construction site. <laughs> you know, one, so one day, so one day, when we had this, we had this scaffolding next to us, and I was thinking, yeah. I can't wait for that to go away because we have such a pretty block. And so finally, the scaffolding went away. Finally, it went away. It's like, oh, man, this is great. Next day, a scaffold shed, you know, the shed, the, the, the base of the scaffold, goes up at the building, not directly across the street, but just down. And then the week after, all the scaffolding goes up because they're going to repoint the building. You know, this is not a quiet process, right? So I'm like, okay, fine. It's summer air conditioning. That'll, that'll help, right? So I can deal with it. Because, I, I mean, I've come a long way. I am, I am so sensitive to noise, and yet I am able to cope with New York. I, my wife is, is totally impressed. So that's fine. It's fine. Then, a week later, another scaffolding shed goes up in the building directly opposite. <laughs> They're going to repoint also. It's like, holy whatever. So noise, noise is the worst. But, you know, the, the, uh, the thing I love most is, is just really the, the show, mm -hmm. the, the, the connection, the... You know, just just being in the midst of it all. You know, I, I, I found that um, after we moved here, uh, I lost um, 15 pounds. And I started to get a little concerned, like, maybe I ought to go to the doctor, you know, what, what's happening? Walking. Mm -hmm. Walking. Everywhere. Just walking everywhere. And you yeah. don't realize it much. And also, also having a classic New York refrigerator. <laughs> There was nothing in my refrigerator. There's nothing that I Every want to snack on. Every day you walk off. into this. Yep. <laughs> There's nothing. That's, I'm embarrassed when people come over. I'm like, no, I, I eat well. I'm not a small, poor bachelor. I, know, I'm I swear. I'm living well. I'm living well. You know, honestly, honestly. Okay, so 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 there's so, so, so there's an avocado. I think it's an avocado. Yeah. <laughs> you know? As it's shriveling up, you know. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, you're a you're a big tennis fan. Huge tennis fan. Big tennis player. You go, oh, tennis player. You go to the U.S. Open here. We do actually. We've gone every year since we moved here. We okay. go. Our, we go for one day. Mm -hmm. The uh, last couple of times we went simply for a day with a grounds pass, which um, I'm not sponsored by the USTA, <laughs> but may I say it is one of the best sports deals in the country. You know, you get a grounds pass, <clears throat> costs you 50 bucks for the day. I, I don't know. I've never. I haven't been to a <clears throat> football or a baseball game now in New York for a while. Man, that probably just gets you a parking spot, right? Yeah, if that. <clears throat> right. So, so for fifty bucks, you get a grounds pass. You get to see any of the any you know, any of a dozen world class matches with world class players. You just and you just walk up to the court and you're standing there right courtside and you you see all these players that you're eventually going to see on TV. You know, it's like it's it's really incredible, especially to me who's a big tennis player. I'm like, oh yeah. I used to have this fantasy that I could actually take a couple of points <laughs> off Nadal. No. <laughs> Who's your guy? Who's your tennis guy? Federer. Love him? Oh, love him. Federer. Uh, but, are you a, but, but, you know, Nadal's my guy too. I love him. And, you know, I mean, I, I, a, lot of these, a lot of the top players, I, I, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, Vavrinka. Mm -hmm. I really like him too. 
I'm not so fond of, of Djokovic, and I'm not so fond. I don't. I don't like Murray. Murray. I'm not a big Murray guy. I'm not a Murray guy. Um, but Federer is my guy. I still think the Nadal Federer what was it 08 Wimbledon was the greatest. <laughs> I remember just watching it, just not wanting to move. It was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. They mm-hmm. never get the cover. That was still to this day one of the best matches of all. No, truly, truly. And and actually, this last, I, I, you know, unfortunately, this last one, um, uh, you know, the. Who was he playing? He was playing. Uh, yeah, he who kept getting hurt. He kept getting hurt Chilich. during. Yes. Chilich, Chilich, Chilich. Yeah, I, tennis player. Are you a tennis player? Sim is a, Simba watches every. We watch every sport. We, we text each other at three in the morning. Hey, you watching sport? India Pakistan cricket? <laughs> oh, that's that's a hard sell. <laughs> yeah, so Chilich. I mean, Chilich was obviously injured. So you know, it was a little. It was a little disappointing. I wanted to see Federer just just do his Federer dance, right? Um, but I was really delighted that he won. I, I, I think he's terrific, and I love the fact that there he is, relatively speaking, an old man. Mm-hmm. And, Winning it one and, more, maybe and, one more time. And he is killing it. He's, he's killing awesome. it after taking a year off. He's like Tom know? Brady. He's just he, he's ageless. He's, he, he is utterly ageless. I thought he looked better this year than he's looked in past years. Any other sports you into? No. None? No. Being a Seattle guy from Seattle, no other sports you really watch? No. Wow, just tennis. Just tennis. No. My wife will be the first to tell you that I do not have the sports gene. That's I love playing tennis. I'm, I'm working at my game. The nice thing is, because when I was in high school and college, I never actually played a sport. Oh, I yeah. mean, I was on the track team in, in, in high school, but because I never actually played a real sport, <laughs> I, I never got injured. Okay. I didn't, you know, I didn't play basketball, so my, my knees didn't go to hell. So here I am at this point in my life, and my tennis game is getting better and better and better. You're the ageless wonder. Yeah, I am the ageless wonder. I mean, I, my tennis game is getting better and better and better, and everything works. Everything works. <laughs> I don't feel any pain. Well, not wood, man. I don't feel any pain whatsoever after a tennis match. Now, we're going to do it. We're not making this political show. I'm always curious about this. And Simba's hands down the biggest Trump supporter, as you are, from your tweets. Now, what, and I'm always curious about this. What, uh, what makes you dis... And I'm not... Choosing one side, I'm not allowed to, obviously. But um, it's fine. You're allowed, just, you actually are allowed to. Oh, no, not, not because of my profession, I'm not allowed to. Oh, vote. yeah. Vote. Oh, okay. But that's no, right. I'm, I'm just right. curious because you are you're not a fan of the president, and I'm just not curious: is there like president. a main reason why, or is there? Because I think he's batshit. Mm-hmm. I think he's a nutcase. I think he actually literally could get us all killed. Okay. And um, yeah, that's about it. No, so. I, I was. I'm always curious because I'm always, obviously you're beyond educated. I'm always curious because people are very. Pro-Trump, anti-Trump, and I'm right. always, I always ask the pro-Trump people and anti-why. Well, look, look. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I think that I think that there there are there there. You know, I'm, I'm all for there are two sides to everything, mm-hmm. right? but there is an objective reality, and then there is the reality that 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 certain people want to be the reality, right? And I get I get the idea that there are folks who think that Trump is going to save the day for them and it's going to you know make things better for them mm-hmm. and i get it that that for a while things have they have not felt that things are good for them um but there's a difference between what you want and what you've got and as i think we've seen just in the last hundred days i mean firings this that and the other thing who knows what mueller is going to turn up with this with this probe i mean you're a cop you know you know so far all we've had <clears throat> i mean t- t- tell me if this is not true so far, all we've had are these are these sort of bland hearings, right? Even the Comey thing, mm-hmm. which is interesting in itself. But even there, it's just like, okay, you know, one senator asks questions, another senator asks questions, sort of set-piece conversations, right? But you know, as I know, that when Mueller gets into the weeds with these people and his people start interviewing, you know, Don Jr. and so forth, it's like, all right, so on, you know, March 5th, where were you? Say, so, well, I was, I was there. But wait, we have records that say you were... They get that to the nitty-gritty of it. Yeah. And, and then it's, well, no, no, I, I wasn't. Well, we, isn't this your phone record? We're, this is your cell phone record that says you were here. You know, that kind of stuff is going to go on. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to start seeing what happens. But the thing is, there's a guy, there, Richard Hofstadter, historian, fabulous historian, 1950s, wrote a book called The Politics Paranoid Style. And he was assessed. See, this is not new to America. 50s, even before we had we had sort of this kind of thing, and as he argued then, is it, the problem is that there are there is this objective reality, and then there's the wannabe reality, and and the two become conflated when in fact there is only one reality. There is only one reality, and that's the reality right now that is going to get us killed. 
unless we're very careful. So that's how I feel. Very, and that's fair. I want to hear your. I'm glad yeah. Simba does have a mic now because this would go on for eight hours. Okay. Are you a Trump supporter, Simba? Yes, you can say. Yes, I promise you at the end, Simba, we'll give you the mic. Because I want to talk about his book, Simba. You can Simba. rebut. You can rebut. I, 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 I promise, Simba. The thing, the thing I would point out is that the thing I would point out. I'm going to get Simba, you a mic. I am. Is that I, I, I am all for spirited debate, right? Mm-hmm. This, this is. I mean, I, I educated like spirit, spirit, and I, and debate. I like, I like interacting with some of the people on mm-hmm. Twitter. Like this one guy whose whose name is, I don't know what is, I can't remember what the Twitter thing is, but he he goes by Western Republican. Okay. And we've actually gotten into sort of a nice exchange, you know. I mean, he's a, he's a total Trump guy, and he knows where I am. But we've we've sort of come to terms. I mean, I'll post something. He says, I got to admit that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, that's where I am. I will also say that, 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 that I mean, I, I really have to back off Twitter and, and, and CNN and all, and, and all this stuff because I swear to God, Trump's giving me an ulcer. No, it, it doesn't. You know, my He's thing, giving me an ulcer. It doesn't stop with the news and stuff. But here we go. We're going yes. to give Simba a mic, I promise you, at the end. And you and Simba can have a good time on the Simba podcast. Now, two of my favorite books, and I told Simba this, my girlfriend, I'm trying not to fanboy out. I've sat across from legendary Hall of Fame athletes, celebrities, athletes, um, everybody, like uh, true crime people. And be, when I mean humble to speak to you, you're legit my favorite author, Isaac Storm. But two books I want to talk about. Okay, my bullshit detector is so, no, no, so, no. so, so flying. If, if I would sh- I'm going to show you my messages. My girlfriend was like, oh, d- don't try to hook up with them. <laughs> Devil in the White That's City. Cute. That's cute. I'll Devil tell in my the wife. White City and In the Garden of Beasts. Two okay. of my favorite books. Okay. And I okay. actually recommend them out to everybody. Has Simba read the, no, and I keep In the Garden of Beasts? No, and Simba would love it. But I first want to talk about The Devil in the White City. Yep. So just give me a quick summary about it. You can drink and summary about it, just say you're going to sell the book to Simba. Simba, let's read the book because summarize Devil in the White City. It's so great. <laughs> Five stars. No, no, no. no. Here, here's the most important thing that you should know about Devil in the White City before we talk about the book is that, is that on the eve of publication, I, I am not, I'm not bullshitting you, on the eve of publication, I was convinced that my career was over. It's true. Why is that? Because I had, you know, I had done this book that broke all the rules of narrative, two stories, two parallel stories that never touch. I was really unhappy. Right. So now, Eric Lush, you're playing spoiler alert, because here's my next question before we get back to the summary. It says, the coolest thing about the book was there was really two books in one. It was a book about the serial killer, H.H. H. Holmes, and the Chicago World's Fair. And now, as you're reading the book, as a reader, I'm waiting for, okay, it's Chapter one about Holmes, two about um, two about the World's Fair, and I'm waiting for them to collide. Yet they never do. <clears throat> and I'm like, it's two separate books, right? Yes, they, they do collide. One one very small point. Okay, it's a very small point, uh, but I don't want to do that because that's sort of a spoiler alert. But you're right; <clears throat> they never actually do come together. Mm-hmm. And I really was sort of in despair because I thought I was going to have my my ass handed to me by the New York Times book review critics. And much to my surprise, the book got this instant, huge reception. And I still, to this day, am somewhat at a loss. And I, I just have to pinch myself because, I mean, I keep getting, I keep getting, I keep getting uh, um, weekly messages from the publicist at the, the paperback publisher who says, yep, you're back at number four this week. That's like, you know, the hardcover came out in 2003, mm-hmm. the paper 2004. I mean, this book has put my kids through college, you know. I mean, I can't explain it. I'm delighted. I'm totally delighted. But it's one of those things where, you know, I could not, and maybe this is why good things happen, but I, I, you could never do a book like this with the expectation that this would happen. You know, it was simply, this was the story I wanted to tell. The dual narrative. Well, say the dual narrative because we actually just jumped around it as we. Yeah. So, so, okay, so, yeah. So, so the dual narrative is is you know one is the serial killer H.H. Um, H. Holmes or or Mudgett, it was his real name. Mm-hmm. Um, the serial killer, and, and I'll tell you, remind me to tell you when I realized it was going to be a hit. Chicago homicide detectives. Just remind me about okay. that. Okay. So, uh, so you know, one 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 side of the, one one half the narrative is about H. H. Holmes, serial killer, you know, who literally operating within eight blocks of the World's Fair, with his World's Fair hotel with his dissection vats, his you know vaults and all this stuff, using the fair as a lure 
to kill these young women. Mm-hmm. Now, nobody knows how many women he killed. The, the, the minimum number that we know of women and men that he killed <clears throat> is nine. Those are the documentable killings. Mm-hmm. Nobody thinks that that's, that's all. And in fact, this forensic psychiatrist that I went to, um, no, I, I didn't go to, but <laughs> I, I, I gave him my manuscript to read, and, and then we had a very interesting lunch. <laughs> <laughs> from my prison. No. So, so uh, but, but uh, fascinating, fascinating the things he told me. He, say, he said that this guy was very likely killing since he was a child, you know, because he was a, a true, uh, there's a term, it's a true Cleckley psychopath. That means, like, if you can imagine this, we all, we're all familiar with sort of Hannibal Lecter, and I'm sure you've met psychopaths and sociopaths in your, in your work as a police officer. But um, if you can imagine a true Cleckley psychopath, that is to say somebody who has zero moral core, truly zero moral core. It's not like Hannibal Lecter, you know? It's, it's somebody who would just as soon kill you as take you out to lunch. Truly, there's no differentiation. The best you can, the closest you can come is um, Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's the closest you can, <laughs> or, I don't, I, I don't want to diverge. I'm into divergence. <clears throat> I don't know if you ever saw the Simpsons episode where, where Homer, <laughs> Homer encounters a school inspector who is Anton Chigurh, <laughs> and he tells Homer, have you seen this episode? No. He says, he says you know, the, the, the quintessential scene in, 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 the, in the film and the book is flip a coin, right? And if, the, it, you know, if it's wrong, if it's not the right side, he kills you. <laughs> so Homer says, you know, he says, what side? And Homer says, it's going to end up on end. And he flips the coin, and it ends up on end. <laughs> <laughs> and the sugar case is very good. But anyway, anyway, so, so, so one side of the story is about this, this, this true um, psychopath and his killings and, you know, eight blocks from the World's Fair. The other side is the construction of the World's Fair in a year and a half, you know, by, by Daniel Burnham and all his crew. Um, and this, you know, I, it, it, it occurred to me ultimately that it was the best of all stories because <clears throat> you have the darkest of the dark, and here you have this monumental act of civic goodwill. You know, the, the fair was nicknamed the White City of all things, right? And they're happening at the same time in the same place, right? So it was the juxtaposition that appealed to me until the eve of publication when I realized I don't think people are going to get it. Oof. But they did get it. They did get it. And not only did they get it, exactly what I hoped was going to happen happened. I had, I had the, the, the World's Fair to me was infinitely more interesting than the serial killings, right? But people love a serial killer of unless they encounter one. Yeah. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. And they don't like them. <laughs> not so much. Um, but people love that sort of thing in, in literature especially. So my feeling was that they were going to come to the book because of that. And my hope was that they would just get so entranced with the fair that that's what would really they would love. And I think that's what happened. I think that's what happened. Well, me personally, I read the book. It's H.H. H. Holmes. It's a serial killer book. I want to read it. I'm reading the book. I've, I felt that I'm like, all right, I'm going to scoot over the World's Fair. I don't care about the building of the Ferris wheel. Oh, that was there. Skip. But I, fo- I found myself, okay, H.H. H. Holmes, he's a dark dude. We see what he's going. This World's Fair, because I wrote down what the World's Fair gum, the zipper, the dishwasher, the Ferris wheel, cracker, like things we use every day. In juicy 18- fruit gum, not just gum, juicy fruit okay. gum. No, this is very important. Are you a juicy fruit guy? Well, well I, uh, <laughs> I am. What of it? No, 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 I am. And actually, the importance of juicy fruit gum is that that's what made me do the book. No, no, I, no. I, okay, you got to go back to the, art, the, the origin story of this book. Let's, let's go for this. Yeah, so, 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 well, there's a much longer story, but I'll give the short form. Once I, once I sort of decided that I was going to start reading about the World's Fair, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I still, at that point, had no interest in... I knew about Holmes at that point for various reasons, but I had no interest in writing about him because I didn't want to do crime porn, mm-hmm. right? Oh, it's sensationalized in almost every book. It's sensation- <laughs> it is. Exactly, exactly. I, I didn't want to do crime porn. But so, so I decided to, to, to randomly to read about the World's Fair of 1893 because I was hard up for a book idea, right? So I start reading about the World's Fair of 1893, and the first thing I read was just like, this, this should have put me off. I mean, it should have like, killed my mind. 
was this really boring monographic history. It was sort of like a Marxist feminist deconstruction of the, of the women's pavilion at the fair, right? You know, something written clearly by somebody who wanted to get tenure at some, some college. Somewhere. Okay, okay. But I know from experience with research that, that you, know, you should always look at, at the footnotes because often, especially writers who are, you know, hub, you know, yeah, who, who, are, who, are, who are forced to write a certain way for academics often put their best stuff in the, in the footnotes. And sure enough, the first thing I came to in the footnotes, you know, was the fact that Juicy Fruit Gum was introduced to consumers at the World's Fair. And I was like, no shit, this gum is 100 years old? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I love Juicy Fruit Gum. I don't, do, you, do you like Juicy Fruit Gum? Who doesn't? Who? Well, actually. The yellow packaging? Come on. Actually, a lot of people don't like Juicy Fruit Gum. It's, it, I've, I've learned that it is sort of a quiet obsession. And, you know, part of the reason is that it's this gum. It's this gum that doesn't have a definable flavor, right? And I've, I, I've, I've had this experience on New York City buses. You know, you're riding along a New York City bus, and somebody <laughs> sitting next to you is chewing Juicy Fruit Gum, and it smells like they threw up. You know, this is not an easy gum. It, it's it's big red. It's winter fresh. What's juicy fruit? It's in the middle. It's like a Seinfeld bit. It is. It is like a Seinfeld it bit. <laughs> it is. It is. So, so, so there's juicy fruit gum, which is like this, this sort of thing that I've loved ever since I was a kid. Wow. And so I was totally intrigued. So I started reading more, reading more of the footnotes. So that, that's where I learned about Cracker Jack. That's where I learned about the zipper. The, the zipper, all the people who came to the fair. And I thought that's where I had the epiphany. Within the first 24 hours of reading that book, I had this epiphany, which was, you know, that's the book. I don't want to write about Holmes alone because I don't want to write crime porn. I don't want to write about the fair alone because I think people will not be drawn to the book. Mm-hmm. But the two together, you know, this, this juxtaposition of light and dark and devil, you know, sort of, sort of Jekyll and Hyde, that's what I really wanted to do. While doing research on the book, is there one thing you discovered besides the world's fair stuff one thing about Holmes you're like holy shit I'd never heard of that or one thing that just shocked you about the book while doing your research yeah the thing that shocked me about the book um, about the research into Holmes was when I when I acquired this this old account done by the detective in the case Frank Geyer um, and really really great it was Dragnet before Dragnet you know I mean, this guy was like matter of fact direct, obviously credible, and he was writing about, this is sort of the final phase of Holmes's journey, you know, where he, where he was dragging three different groups of people across the countryside, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I found that so fascinating, and also it was great to come across this book, because it was like, this, this made the end of my, my book, but I found that so fascinating, just this, the depth of this manipulation of this guy, and this is what happens with this is what happens with um, sociopaths, psychopaths, is that you know, they progress in a certain way and they become what, what um, psychiatrists refer to as disorganized, increasingly disorganized. So he, he starts to, to try to, to work his magic over this sort of untenable like three-way thing, killing along the way. And that to me was fascinating. That's what I, I most loved. When I Googled the book, I think yesterday or today, or two days ago, is they're making a movie out of it and Leonardo DiCaprio because yes. it said Leonardo DiCaprio but did he buy the book how does that work here's how it works <clears throat> so the book has been I don't have any books I don't know if you know yeah. Eric I haven't, per- I haven't two, uh, made two, any books yet so. two, two of my books have been, have been optioned what would you say I haven't authored any books that were uh, purchased yet by big time authors so. but by oh. big time uh, actors so. <laughs> <laughs> so so there are, there are two uh, two of my books have been optioned one is um, uh, In the Garden of Beast the other is Devil in the White City mm-hmm. So the way it works is they, they buy an option which gives them the right to eventually make a film based on the book. It's sort of like staking out the territory. It's like they own the rights, you know, for, for at least for typically an 18-month period. Nobody else can get in the way. It's all, it's all good. So DiCaprio has had this option now for probably about five years. But what has sort of juiced the project is that within the last, I think, six months, he um, recruited a screenwriter, Billy Ray, who's very good. Um, and um, he also recruited Martin Scorsese to be the director. Oh, God, okay. Right. So what happens next? I don't know. I mean, you know, Hollywood is Hollywood. And, and, and what I feel very strongly, I, I stay out of it completely. I don't want to have a role in it. Do you have any say in it? 
I don't want to say in it. I'm not. A, I'm not a film guy. I mean, I don't even watch movies. So yeah, neither do I. Well, I, I'm trying to watch. I'm trying to watch more TV, frankly, because it's so good. Like Breaking Bad and all. Ask me about Breaking Bad later. But it, <laughs> but it, but anyway, anyway. <laughs> uh, what was I saying? Um, no. Can I ask you one question about the movie? And this might yeah. be this might be rude. I don't know how I'm allowed no, to ask this. Do you get paid from that movie when it make like if the movie does well, are you gonna get money from it? Okay, here, here's the here's the. I uh, hope that's not rude. I don't know if I'm leaving out. You can that's ask. Me, up. I like I said, you can ask me anything. Okay. You want. The way the option works is they pay you a certain chunk of money, um, and then if they don't make the film in that time period, they have they can decide to renew the option or or kill it. Happily, this option has been renewed. Different people have held this option actually over the years. I mean, it's. It's really been quite remarkable. It's put my kids through college, oh. bought my bought, bought my apartments. I mean, I I, I am happy beyond happy. Although I, I I have to give you another sort of discursive moment. So so at one point, at one point with WNYC, um, Catherine Bigelow was involved. Who um, you know the Hurt Locker? She's the director mm-hmm. of that, and now she's doing what is she doing now? Something. Anyway, really one of the most um, beautiful, compelling women I've ever met. Right. Just, just hangs on every word, which is, you know, obviously very attractive. And so she wanted to meet me for lunch um, in Seattle. So we did. We went to the Dahlia Lounge. Shout out to Dahlia. <laughs> favorite restaurant in Seattle. So we went to lunch there. And so I'm, we're in a booth. I'm here. She's there. And, and we're having this, this really great conversation. You know, I mean, she's just so smart. It's almost erotic. You know what I mean? And <laughs> unbeknownst to me. My wife is a physician. She's a neonatologist, and she ran the, the, the neonatal intensive care units in, in the Seattle area. And her fellows, you know, medical fellows who are in the advanced phase of training, happened to be having a, a, a celebratory lunch because it was the end of some phase of their careers, were at the next booth across the way. There are five of them there, and I'm here with this fabulously attractive woman. And she's just hanging on every word that I'm 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 saying, and it's like... And they later reported back to my wife. So, no, no, no. So we we saw your husband at the Dahlia Lounge. She says, "Oh yeah, that's the director of his." <laughs> that's pretty cool. It was very cute. But anyway, so 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 the way options work <laughs> is that they option it, and and if they they don't do the film in that time, they can decide to continue the option or quit and walk away. It's all fine. So in this case, though, they they actually just renewed the option. So they're they're obviously serious or else they're crazy, but mm-hmm. they're obviously serious. Whether a film eventually gets me, I, I don't know. I don't know. I can't say, but I don't care. That's pretty interesting, though. Like, a book you wrote is going to go into, that's pretty cool. You know, I, I, honestly, well, I, I, you know, I, would, I would love it. My daughters, I have three grown daughters. And me, we're going to all hang out with Leo. <laughs> me, me, Simmer, and the Larson family be hanging well, out. <laughs> yeah, nobody's going to be hanging out with Leo, let me tell you. But my, my daughters are all, my daughters are all like, I haven't even talked to him. My, my daughters are all like, like, like Dad, um, you know, for the premiere, we're all coming. I said, you know, I hope so. They wanted me to write into the contract, and I, and I said this to my Hollywood agent, that, that one requirement, if he's going to have rights to this film, is that we all get to have him over for dinner. And she's like, uh, no. <laughs> this is not going to happen. This is not going to happen. So anyway, so that was good. One, one, of, the guys, one of the guys, by the way, was... Uh, Oh, gosh, I think I'm going to get the name. His last name is Schaum- Richard Schaumburg, the guy who was the producer of uh, Contagion. I, I don't watch movies. So yeah, yeah, Contagion. So a big film about, you know, a, 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 you know, dystopic sort of you know, epidemic that almost kills the entire world. But anyway, so, so we meet up for a drink in Chicago. We meet up for a drink in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I met up for a drink in Chicago. He'd been nursed a glass of wine throughout the whole one hour and a half thing. Okay. As I was snarfing up Manhattans, right? <laughs> and but but so so he was very funny though. He was telling me about why he was in Chicago. He says he's scouting scenes for for the movie Contagion. He says he says you're gonna love this film. You're gonna love this film. He says everybody dies. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Spoiler alert. <laughs> anyway, anyway. So so but but that's the way it works. And and the, the where 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 things really start to happen in terms of financially is. When a movie reaches the point where the film goes in the camera, that's the so-called moment of principal photography. Then you know it's going to be a film, and then all the various payments are, are triggered, and then they actually buy the book outright. Okay, now one last question. About but, but, I, but I have to tell you my philosophy of, okay. of, of, of film. 
I endorse I endorse um, the, the the Tom Jones philosophy, not Tom Jones, <laughs> Tom <laughs> Wolf, Tom Wolf philosophy of Tom Wolf philosophy of, of of film, of books and film, and he says what you do is you bring your book to the fence, okay. pass it over, take the bag of money, and run. And, that, and that's, what you, that's how you got that's, your kids through, through that's, school. That's so how I plan to, to pursue film in my life. Okay, now I'm going to have one more question about Devil in the White City. And like you said, I can answer mm. you everything because I didn't want to – it's not controversy. Yeah. So you, I, you can ask me anything. Well, yeah, I'm not into the whole like, oh, let's do controversy. So I had Harold Schechter on. He, yes. Yes. Yeah, he, he wrote a book on H.H. Holmes. Was yeah. It, uh, was it Deviant? Uh, I, 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 no, it was called Depraved. Depraved, okay. And that's what I was going to ask him because when – No, I, I, I used his book. Yeah, well, that's what my question was because I had him on – and I'm like, oh, I'm like, you wrote a book, and very rarely do you see two people write a book on, like, it's kind of like, hey, this guy wrote the John Wayne Gacy book. He kind of coined the market on Kill a Clown. Right. Helter Skelter, Vincent Bogolzi, he got the Manson one. Right. Your book wasn't an autobiography of Holmes. Was there any, because he really didn't say, he kind of like, oh, whatever, like, he kind of brushed it off, and I didn't want to go into it. Was there any kind of, um, like, conflict or any, anything different with that with you and uh, Harold Schechter? No. Okay, okay. No. Um, my view of Harold Schechter's book is that I, I, thought it was, I thought it was a good book. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I used it as a resource. You know, I thought, I thought, it, was, I thought it was very, um, very useful. Um, and very different than my book. Oh, completely. Like you said, and this, this isn't a knock on him because he came on the show before. It's a little bit more crime porn. It's more graphic with it. it is. It's he, 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 sensationalizing well, he, a little bit. He, he writes a certain kind of book. Mm -hmm. Albert Fish, he wrote him, yeah. And, and and you know if you read if you if you read his 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 book Depraved, there's very little mention of the fair, relatively little mention mm -hmm. of the fair. So, but we used a lot of the same sources. So, you know. And back then, I'm just and this is just me being a fan of write, of reading. Right. There's only so many sources you can use back then. It's not now where there's so many sources. It's back then. You're only going to use a certain amount of sources. Is well, that correct? Or no. I mean, there were a lot of available sources if you dug. You know, he, he, he dug pretty deep. I dug pretty deep, too. I mean, the key, well, very deep. But the key thing, the key thing that um, we both found um, was um, Holmes's autobiography, mm -hmm. which is at the Library of Congress in there. It, literally, it's called the Dangerous Books section. <laughs> and so, so one of the first things I did when I was doing the research was that I had the Library of Congress duplicate this thing, because this is the only copy of this and book. And they did a few? Yeah, oh, that's yeah. Wild. well, that's what they do. That's cool. I, it cost me like ninety bucks. Yeah, it was the best money I ever spent on that book. But but yeah, I mean, it was um, it was this this incredibly sort of narcissistic, somewhat revealing book. You know, um, fascinating, fascinating. But but when you supplement that with his various, um, I'm talking about Holmes, mm -hmm. confessions, the trial. You know, there was a trial transcript. It was actually published in a hardcover book because it's considered one of the great trials of the 20th century. It's not that interesting, frankly. I mean, it's it's good, but the the the, the meat of the thing, the sensational stuff in Chicago, the judge for whatever reason said, "No, it's going to prejudice the jury." Wow. Well, fuck you. Wow. I mean, that, I, yeah. You, you, what about me? Holy <laughs> wow. Know. So anyway, but, but there was a lot of stuff, and also newspapers reported things very differently back then than they do now. Um, a lot of primary sources wind up in the newspapers back then, wound up in the newspapers back then. For example, letters, um, you know, um, interview things. After, after it broke that the, the Holmes Castle had been revealed, the Chicago Daily Tribune, which, is, which was a very good paper then, and I think it's pretty good now. You know, each day for over a week, six full pages. Just on that. Coverage on the, on the case. And that's six full 1896 pages, right? Everything. Small type. The fold out, small type, small font. Small type, you know, parents with you know, letters from parents, you know, all this stuff. So there was a lot of stuff. There really was actually a lot of stuff on Holmes. A lot more stuff on the fair, believe me. <laughs> but Now let's go into In the Garden of Beasts. Yes. Still think, Simba's getting you a drink, don't worry. Still think, incredible book. Before I, I want to hear the summary of you. Were you nervous about writing a book about, like, just say Hitler and Nazis? Because there was there's so many books on it. Like, there's so many books on 
World War II, on Hitler, on like when I see the book, I'm a casual reader. I see the book and I see a swat stick. I'm like, oh, another book on World. War. Were you nervous? Because like you said, you were nervous about the Holmes book. Were you nervous about this? Wait till you see my next book. Okay. <laughs> you are so tapping into my current, you know, subterranean angst. I can't tell you. Yes, I was deeply concerned. And, and also, can you summarize the books? Like, I want to hear, like... Yeah. So, In the Guy and the Beast, the thing that motivated me, and again, I'm, I, I guess I'm a more political guy than I ever imagined I would be, but in part, it was stimulated by some of the things that were happening at the last minute, uh, not the last minute, but in, in the closing, um, uh, closing years, I guess, of the, the George W. Bush administration, when they were starting to fire U.S. attorneys because of their politics kind of an echo now, right? Wow. Firing U.S. attorneys because of their politics and, and, and also, um, and also um, they were putting so-called political agents into various departments in the government. Okay. That is to say, people who were inserted in these departments, people who were inserted in these departments to try to, um, to, try to gauge the political sympathies of base-level employees, civil servants, and so forth. And I thought, wow, that's really something, how strange that is. And one day, and I was at a bookstore. I was hard up for ideas. The idea search is really a hard part for me. One day I was in a bookstore, and I saw this book face out that I had never read that I was meant to read. Um, small print, 1,700 pages, no photographs. You know, okay. uh, it's not the Bible. Okay. It's not the Bible. <laughs> Um, but it was The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, right, by William Shire. So I read this. I, I, I bought it. I took it home. I had nothing else to do, so I read it. The thing that impressed me most was that William Shire was actually there in Berlin as most of this unfolded. And I thought to myself, wouldn't, because of the current then political situation, wouldn't it be interesting to try to get a sense of what it would have been like to have lived in Berlin in that time, in 1933-34. Right before Hitler took over. As Hitler, no, Hitler was taking over at that point, but before all the really bad stuff began to happen. And so I thought, uh, so I started looking for, for characters. Um, I found William E. Dodd, who's the American ambassador, um, first American ambassador to Nazi Germany. Listen to him, he's, he's telling you why you should read the book. And, and, he, and, he, and he was interesting, he's interesting. But yeah, I'm not that big a fan of Diplomatic history is really uh, to me they're sort of sort of dull, um, but you know I continued reading. Then I came across his daughter Martha, Martha Dodd, and then I was hooked. It's like my God, this is the daughter of America's first ambassador to Nazi Germany is sleeping with the first chief of the Gestapo. Yeah, she was hanging out and hooking up the Nazis. I know because, like many people, I didn't mean to point to you about Trump, but because like many people, <laughs> because like. <laughs> because, like, like many people, you know, a lot of people were into Hitler at that point. People forget that, that the Nazi thing was the very charisma, popular yes. with a lot of people. And, you know, one of the things that I tried to bring out in the book is that the, the, Nazi, the Nazi Party, the platform, NASDAQ, the National Socialist Party, National Socialist Democratic Party, um, their platform had, like, I don't know, like 25 things, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, and of those there was something for everybody, right? You didn't have to hate the Jews, but you could love the idea that he was going to make, literally, he was going to make Germany great again. That was what Hitler was all about. He was going to, no, true. I know, truly, I know that. This was his thing. He was going to make Germany great again. And this appealed to, to Germans because the Versailles Treaty, the Versailles, mm -hmm. you know, the, the armistice of the Versailles Treaty had really, really, and, and I think nobody will argue at this point, really had sort of oppressed Germany. And so, um, so that was very, very, very powerful. Um, and the idea to me of, of trying to capture what it would have been like, like, like the way I try to describe it to when I, whenever I talk about the book is what would, it ha what would I have felt if I'd been living in Berlin in 1933-34 in one of Berlin's fabulous cafes? I mean, Berlin was an amazing city despite Hitler. Um, and despite the Nazis, it was an amazing city. I mean, you know, the Nazis were sort of this dark fringe, but you could go dancing every night. It was great. Um, you know, comedy clubs, the whole thing, and these these amazing cafes, uh, a couple of which would seat up to like 1,200 people. You know, 
these are just cafes. And I started to think, well, what would I, what would I have been, how would I have felt if I'd been sitting in one of these cafes as Hitler was driven by in his open car, right? Would it have been the, the most normal of things? Would it have been exciting? Would it have been repulsive? Would it have been, you know, the way I like to think of it is, would it have been sort of funny, like, you know, metaphorically, like, like would I have texted, what's up with that mustache, LOL? You know what I mean? But what would it have been like, right? And so, so, so I found these characters who were, in my view, perfect, because they came in being very naive, both Dodd and his daughter. From Illinois, right? Were they from... Where are they from? Chicago. Chicago. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Very naive. And it's so rare in non In fiction, you, you always want to have the, um, a narrative arc where the character is transformed, mm-hmm. goes through hell, you know, the so-called Vonnegut curve, goes through hell and emerges, you know, triumphant, right? Real life, it rarely happens, right? But in this case, these guys, Dodd and his daughter, really underwent a transformation. They, they underwent a true transformation because of the horror of events in that one year. And that's what really, really sold me on it. I mean, I'm going to ask you a question about writing the book. Uh, Mark Bowden. And Tom did, Hanks has bought that book. All right. Spoiler alert. Thanks. Did he really? Yeah. No, wait, when was that now? So now we're having no, he, he, he has the option for that book. So me and Sim are going to be hanging out with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. Yeah. Yeah. We all are. <laughs> we all are. We all are. <laughs> No, the, the only, the only, the only, the only one of these, the only one of these folks that I've actually talked to was uh, was actually Tom Hanks. I had a nice, nice long conversation with him. I'm impressed. I like Tom Hanks. He's a very smart guy. Very I'll smart. Guy. Get him on the show. <laughs> yeah, let, no, let me I'll, just, I'll tell him. Tell him. Yeah, come on. Mark Bowden came on the show and he said um, his favorite part about writing books. He said he gets to go to these countries. And um, when I spoke to him, I was in Colombia and I read his book, Killing Pablo. So I reached out to him. He said, yeah, I'll come to, on the to show. To Pablo? No, Killing Pablo. Oh. <laughs> so Killing Pablo. I thought you reached out to, like, the cartel. No, I wish. Yeah, right. Uh, so I'm, I'm in Medellin, Cartagena, uh, Medellin, Colombia, and I went to Pablo Escobar's grave. And I was actually reading the book, you know, doing research on my trip to Colombia. I come home. I email him. He comes on the show. We have a great time. And he says his favorite part about writing is going to these places. Now, you write about Chicago back then. Berlin 50, 60 years ago. Do you travel while you do your uh, quote-unquote research? What's the quote-unquote research Well, I don't know part? if it's research. If you need to go for Do you travel for that stuff? I deduct it. Yeah. Oh. If, if that's what you're saying. <laughs> you get to write it all? I do. I do. Oh, that's cool. Do you? No, I, I, yeah, I, I, I travel everywhere. Okay. I, I mean, I, you, know, you, 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 can't, you can't not travel to these places if, you're doing, if you want to do a decent book. Mm-hmm. Because you never know... Even the very subtle things that you will discover. I mean, Chicago. I spent a lot of time in Chicago. A lot of people think that I lived there, you know, which I thought, which I take as a mark of honor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Chicago. One of the things that I, that I found very, very impressive. I tried to go in different seasons so I would understand what it's like in the dead of winter and in the fall and the summer and so forth. And one of the salient things that I learned was that the, Lake Michigan is really this sort of governing aesthetic in Chicago, especially at the time of the fair when the fair was on the border of, was on the shore of, of the lake. And Lake Michigan, you know, changes color, changes mood. I mean, it's just really a very important factor. And I never really would have realized that if I had not simply gone there as much as I did. And you went to Berlin and researched there? Went to Berlin. Didn't do all that much research in Berlin apart from simply walking the ground to sort of see where everything was. And that was really important. A couple of reasons. One was, um, you know, when I, when, I, when, I, when I first went to Berlin, I went in February, as one does. Of course. <laughs> because it's cheap. I got, I got a great <laughs> hotel. I, I got a great hotel room at the Intercontinental Hotel. Um, uh, fat, one of the best hotel rooms I've ever had. Corner room, way up overlooking the Tier Garden. For like I don't know, it's like 180 euros, you know, which in the center of Berlin is like ridiculous. It was, in fact, though, a period where there was like horizontal snow and it was cold and all. But but so but that was incredibly valuable for a number of reasons. One, looking out from my hotel, I, I, I looked across the Tier Garden and and Berlin. The first thing this is going to sound a little bit weird, but the first thing that occurred to me was Corpus Christi. Corpus Christi, Texas, flat, Hurricane Bay. There's no hurricane and there's going to strike Berlin. But 
I was really struck by the fact that Berlin is just a very, very flat from mm -hmm. as far as the eye. There is a highland area off to the wherever, but that very much impressed me. Um, and and I don't know why. I mean, it just it just did, and it probably in some weird way infused the entire book. As did the fact that once I started walking around, I realized that everything was so close together. The Dodds house. 20 minutes from Gestapo headquarters, 20 minutes from the Reichstag, you know, 20 minutes from Hitler's... It was know. like a perfect storm of everything, from the characters to location, everything, e right? Every, every, everything. And to me, that was, wow, wow, all this stuff. I and mean, just the idea of Martha being able to walk out of their house, as I'm sure she did, and go and have a meeting with, you know, Rudolf Diels, her lover, the first chief of the Gestapo, who, as it turns out, was a decent guy. He was a decent guy. You made him likable. <laughs> he, was not, he was not Heinrich Himmler who followed, who was not a decent guy, who was a killer from the get-go. Um, so I was intrigued by all that stuff. And, and the more I got into it, the more I just, I just, I just loved it. But there, too, I have to tell you, as you, as you said in the you know, beginning of the conversation about In the Garden of the Beast, uh, on the eve of publication of that, I was really concerned because it's like, does the world really need another book about the Third Reich? I had read a statistic, something that, that in, in, in the year before my book came out, the prior year, there had been something like 800 publications on Hitler and the Third Reich. What's the fascination with, with everyone with it? With, forget about serial killers, with Hitler, because you said 800 books. What's the fascination? If you have to ask, you yeah. don't get it. No, I, <laughs> you know? no, I mean, it, it is, I think it is that, that, that this, sort of, this sort of, the depth of evil, you know, this, this sort of, the, the, the clarity and depth of evil. There is something actually sort of almost, I don't want to use this term. I, I use this in, in, a, in a very particular way, almost thrilling. So evil, so evil. It's like reading a childhood fairy tale, you know, one of the grim fairy tales. And, and evil that, that is... is is, is is there is no shading? It's complete evil, and I think that's the appeal. I actually this question. And pe people still try to understand. They still try to understand. How did this guy do it? I actually this question with Devil in the White City. Was there one thing while you're researching this that you stopped and go, "Holy shit, this happened"? Was there one like, "Wow" moment during the writing of In the Garden of Beasts? Yeah, I, I have to say that when I first discovered that that Martha was. Dating Rudolf it's, Diels. It's like fake. Like you couldn't make as an author. You're like, okay, I stumbled no. upon. Well, see, this is the thing. This is the thing. This is the thing. The Holy Grail. Writing, <laughs> sort of, writing a <laughs> writing a novel. If you were to write, a, here's the, the, the great paradox. Writing. If you were to write a novel about um, about uh, that period, right? And you were to include something about the daughter of the American ambassador sleeping with the first chief of the Gestapo. The paradox is. Nobody would believe it. Nobody would believe it. But because it's fact, it's real. You have to believe it, and it becomes very powerful. So, so, so there, there was that. But also a lot of the details about the, the, you know, the, uh, um, just, the, just the, the sort of purge that you know, occurred while they were there, that was very, very powerful. Um, I just I, I found it fascinating. Okay, a couple of personal questions before we finish up. Yeah. Yeah. Was there ever a book or a story you wanted to write about that you didn't, for one reason or another, that you were like, you know what, this is a topic I'm going to crush, I'm going to write a book about, yet you didn't? Was there ever a Well, if you're talking about failed ideas. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> like, was there ever a book, you know what, I want to write about this event or this character, and for some reason, eh, you, you fell off or... Well, well, well but, I, but I think you are actually talking about things that I've, I've, I've attempted yeah, you that, failed. That, that, that failed. What has I've Eric Lawson failed at? <laughs> well, oh, I, oh, I have failed. I, I've failed at so many things. But law? <laughs> law, I've, I've, I failed at law. I failed at law. Um, you know, I, uh, there are a number of ideas that I looked into really heavily that, that I thought by all counts, would have been good ideas, right, that should have worked. Um, and then for whatever reason, at the last minute, I, in the case of one I went through last year, I'd actually sent the, the book proposal to my agent. And as soon as I hit send, I realized I did not want to do it. I didn't want to do it. 
And my agent, um, you know, I called him after a couple of days to see what he thought. And I knew then that he sort of shared the same thing because he says to me, well, what did you think? So he, he knew, and he I, knew. And I said, I hate it. I don't want to do it. And he was like, he just laughed. I always ask athletes who come on my show and uh, like celebrities, who's the coolest person there on phone that bore out at the bar? Me and, me and Eric Lawson are at a bar and you want to impress somebody. Who's the coolest guy on your phone that you can text that would text you back? But I'm going to ask you something different. Who's the coolest person that approached you and goes, hey, I read one of your books and I loved it. Was there anyone that flawed you? Because I've had like all these athletes on like, oh, I have Michael Jordan's number. I have Obama's number. I have Garth Brooks' number. Was ever somebody like, hey, by the way, Eric, big fan of your writing. They're like, holy shit, so-and-so likes my writing. You know, I, I, it, it, it's not necessarily that, that people have, have, you know, the, the, these exalted folks have come up to me and said it to me. But what I know is, for, exa- for example, I know that Obama gave a copy of In the Garden of the Beast to Angela Merkel. I, that, I like that. I like that. Um, and, I, and I love it when, when you know, I, I'm sure there are moments when, 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 when people have, have come. I, I just, I, I'm not a star fuck, so I can't tell you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that, that into that, that stuff. Um, but I do love, what I really love is when one of my books is sort of mentioned in some sort of popular cultural context. For example, um, becomes a clue on Jeopardy. I love that. It has? Oh, yeah, many times. Really? Many times, and I always hear from, from my Twitter fans. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, I love it when it's on Twitter. Oh, and, and one of my favorite things was, uh, was in The Sopranos. I guess that there's a gay fireman in The Sopranos. Did you ever watch The Sopranos? No, I never watched it. So I guess there's, there's a gay, well, it's irrelevant that he's gay, but there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, I guess, a villainous gay fireman who, who one night is in bed reading Devil in the White City. Just and, little things, and, you, and, and people and, tell you about it. Right? Oh, I hear about that all the time, <laughs> and those are the things that tickle me. They absolutely tickle me. Or the thing that really tickles me is like if I get onto a plane or, or, or something, and I see somebody reading one of my books. You know, that must be wild. Right? I that just, was... I just love it. I so because in the it. airport, I'm in the airports. Like I said, we we talked earlier before, off mic. We both travel. I'm in the airport all the time. Always on that little stand with the top twenty books. It's. Devil in the White City, you're always two of the top 20 books. If you see someone, do you, have you ever once said, hey, who, who, who was the other person? Gar, Garth? No, and, what do you mean? I, you said my book and then... No, Gar- no, no, I'm sorry. Devil oh. in the White City oh, and okay. In the Garden of Beasts. They're always up there, paper bot. Oh, I thought people. you were going to mention my friend Garth Stein's uh, uh, Art of Racing in the Rain. No, no, uh, no. Okay. So your book's always up there. If you see someone reading, have you ever once said, oh, that's me. Eric Larson, be honest to me. Be honest. Yes. Yes. <laughs> tell, me, tell me the situation. Well, it was it was actually it was actually really fun. <laughs> I don't I don't usually do that. I'm, I'm I'm that's more interested in seeing how they if they're really like into it and so forth. But the, all right. So this, I, I don't know what this is. But anyway, so so I'm on the subway, and, and may I just say that I, yeah, I, maybe I'm alone in this, but I adore the subway. When it so works, it's magic. When it works, it's magic. But anyway, these days, compared to the 1970s, oh, man, it's, it's fabulous. All the doors open, and there's air conditioning, you know. There's no graffiti. Oh, no. And you're not oh, no. robbed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no knife at your throat. <laughs> anyway, so this, this very attractive woman was reading um, In the Garden of Peace. Totally wrapped, right? And um, so we're getting off at the same time, and, and, and I said, so I have to ask you, do you like it? And she, she looked at me, and she did a double take, and she said, <gasps> <laughs> and I just walked off, and she walked off, and it was a great moment. It was a great moment. I'm that memorabilia guy, but have you ever kept any memorabilia from your research? If you did research and someone gave you something, have you ever kept any memorabilia? I, I'm not a mem- memorabilia guy either, but people give me. Of course. Things. And, I, and I, I hang on to them. People what? routinely yeah. send me things from the World's Fair. Um, they send me postcards from the Lusitania, you know, from my book, Dead Wake. Which, well, if I can show you good reads, I'm going to prove to you. I actually just got it from the library. Sorry, I didn't purchase it, so I, I screwed you. You, you can. <laughs> you can. You yeah, can. so I, I actually just got the book. I'm starting it tomorrow because I try to read 52 books in 52 weeks. Really? Yeah, for the past four years, I've done it. 
Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I try yeah. to read a book okay. a week, and that's my next book coming up on the thing. So, which one? Your Dead Wake is my next Dead book. Wake. Oh, good. I'll go. That's my ne- my next week. Oh my God! There it is. Another drink. There we go. So we're gonna have to talk for another half hour. <laughs> we'll get Simber on. My last generic question for you, because yeah, yeah. Okay, Simba. Thanks, Simba, for just interrupting. No, my next generic question for you is what's next? And I know you get this, and I hate asking. I've had like seven authors on, and I hate asking this question, but I have to. Are you sitting home at night having a drink? I want to write about blank. And is that like how does the next step of your career go? Like I'm going to write about this. Well, I I wish it were that simple. I mean, Mm -hmm. for me, the idea process is really hard, really, really hard. And unfortunately, it typically takes me about a year between the time I finish a book and the time I start the next book. Wow, okay. Um, and, and it's because I went to do the kind of history that I like to do, the so-called narrative nonfiction. I don't really like that label, but, but you know, it's a nonfiction that reads as if it were a novel. Um, you have to have a certain kind of idea because you can't make shit up. You, you cannot do that. Once you do that, you have crossed the line. And you get called out in a second. That's a problem. Yeah, you get called out in a second. I mean, I still get, I get called out by people who don't understand, and they're like, oh, but wait, you have, you have dialogue in your books. And I'm like, my author's note says that everything between quotation marks is from a real mm-hmm. historical document. It's, it, it's got to be real. So that's one of the criteria. When you're looking for an idea, you have to have a very rich seam of material because you can't fake it. You have to have transcripts of, of things. You have to have letters. You have to have you know, maybe interviews with newspaper writers and so forth, even though it's you know, his, historical. You're, you're going to find that stuff. But you also, very important, you have to have this, this very powerful narrative arc. There has to be a real-life nonfiction story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it has to be an ascending arc, like in the case of my book, Dead Wake, about the Lusitania. I mean, in some ways it's a no-brainer, and in some ways it's not. And one problem I have with Lusitania, the same thing you, you mentioned before, is it done so much in the past, right? Um, but what I felt was that I could bring something new to the party. I could bring an element of suspense to it and use the materials that are out there in ways that other people hadn't. And I think I did. I think I actually did that successfully. But if you have something like the, like the Lusitania, the narrative arc is a no-brainer because you know where the Lusitania is. You know, um, everybody that's very well documented what its course was and, mm-hmm. and the passengers and so forth. But one of the things that I found was the war log of the, of, the, of the submarine commander, you know, which told me exactly where he was and what he was going through during this whole time. So this is one of those few cases where when you know the ending, it actually helps in terms of suspense because you know a bad thing's going to happen. And it's, you know, you see these things. You're connecting you know, the dots. You're, yeah, here's the, the submarine commander, here's the lieutenant, blah, blah, blah. And you know all these things are approaching. And so that's why I think that book actually, I think, I think worked pretty well. But, but looking for that kind of thing, you have to have, you have, to have that, kind of, um, that kind of strong narrative arc. And also, I have to be interested in the story. So this next one, I mean, I'm not going to tell you necessarily what, what it is. But Thanks, Eric Lawson. Yeah, but, it, but, it's, <laughs> but, it's, uh, but it's, you know, yeah, I, again, it's, what is a little discomforting is that it's in a territory that has been heavily done. Heavily Can done. you give me the city you'll be visiting to do the research? <laughs> <laughs> it's been heavily done. Okay. It's been heavily done. But I'm doing a thing that I am really interested in knowing. Often, often it's a question, like in the case of in the Garden of Beasts, to me it was like, what would that have been like for me? With Hitler's rise, would I have recognized the crisis? I mean, would, would you? You know, who, who saw it and who didn't, Right. And in this case, it, it's, it's more like, what would I have felt if I were in this situation? What is it like to have this happen? And a very interesting, just to further whet your appetite, um, it was my move to Seattle. I mean, my move to New York that prompted this. And not just the move to New York, but specifically, tell me if this makes sense. I mean, you obviously were here during 9-11. Mm-hmm. I was not. I was in Seattle. Watched the whole thing unfold on live CNN. Very, very powerful. As soon as I got here, I realized, wow, my experience was nothing compared to a New Yorker's experience. Living in your own city with this thing happening, 
get, get an attack, yeah. What would that have been like? I mean, I, I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. but I don't know. And then I transposed that to something else in history, and I, I thought, I'm going to find out what they felt. I'm intrigued. Yeah. Now, let me tell you something. As we end up now, and I really mean this. I know yeah. you yeah. thought I, you had the bullshit meter on. Reading, now I'm telling you, when I have athletes on here, and this isn't a knock on to any athlete and stuff, <laughs> he has a straw going left to right with the bullshit meter going up. <laughs> but I mean that. When I have athletes on, to sit here with an author, every author I have on, I'm always intrigued by it. I love reading. It's all I do. I don't watch, I watch sports and documentaries and just read books. So to have you on was a pleasure to read three of your books, Isaac Storm, Devil in the White City, Garden of Beasts, and now Dead Wake. It's just an honor to have you on, and you'll be on intrigued, and I really appreciate you coming on. I, you know, I totally appreciate it. This was really a lot of fun. Six months in the making. Since six months of me stalking you, you come on. you got to keep it going. I mean, if there's anybody you want that I can put you in touch with. Anyone. I'll, I'll, any, I interview anybody. Anybody. I have a rugby player on, a surfer. Uh, this dude, anyone. I interview really everyone. I just want to have everyone on just have a good time. So Yeah, yeah. So anyway, here we go. On the air. Anyone you know. You don't have to say the name now. Anyone you give the name to, I'll have them on in a second. Ivanka? Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Lawson, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Cheers, my friend. Thank you. Cheers. This is great fun. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Here's how to play Sip, Peel, Win at Duncan. Just sip, peel, win. I want a doormat. Look more closely. I want a dogmat? Put on your reading glasses. I want a donut. There you go. Enjoy a large or extra-large coffee for your chance to win from millions of prizes, like JetBlue travel certificates, Fandango movie tickets, or Fanatics gear. Just sip, peel, win at Dunkin'. America runs on Dunkin'. No purchase necessary. 13 plus ends 10, 15, 18, or while supplies last. For game, peace, and official rules, visit sippeelwin.com. Here's how to play sip, peel, win at Dunkin'. Just sip, peel, win. I want a doormat. Look more closely. I want a dogmat? Put on your reading glasses. I want a donut. There you go. Enjoy a large or extra-large coffee for your chance to win from millions of prizes, like JetBlue travel certificates, Fandango movie tickets, or Fanatics gear. Just sip, peel, win at Dunkin'. America runs on Dunkin'. No purchase necessary. 13 plus ends 10, 15, 18, or while supplies last. For game, peace, and official rules, visit sippeelwin.com.